Let's grab our Bibles and go to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, we're going to go from verses 1 to 20 today. Acts chapter 14, while you're turning there, I'll remind you tonight is prayer night. We, we have our, our monthly prayer night. We do this about seven, eight times a year, and we will have our first one of 2019 tonight. You don't want to miss it. We're actually going to do some things a little bit differently tonight to help you in prayer. And if you've never come to one of these, I want to encourage you. This is an awesome night to gather together, five to about 6.30 as we call on God. If you're like, how do you do that for an hour and a half? We'll show you, right? It's not, you don't have to pray the whole time. It's, it's worship and prayer and worship and prayer, and people that come with say, man, it's one of the best services, one of the most important services, certainly, that we do uh, all month. So I hope you'll plan on being there 5 to 6.30 tonight over at the Grand Avenue campus, okay? 5, 6.30, Grand Avenue. Bring your kids. We'll take care of them. Um, and if you, uh, you know, maybe meet up with your growth group and, and, uh, and enjoy some fellowship after that, okay? All right, Acts chapter 14. So uh, several years ago, I was invited to um, kind of uh, do a faculty workshop at, at APU for a group of faculty and just saying, hey, come and just talk to us. So as I prepared for it, I thought, what do I, what do I want to say? I wasn't really sure. These people are really intelligent, smart people. And so it just so happened that my daughter, Gabby, my oldest, was heading into college that year, a different college, but she was going to college. And I was thinking about her and thinking about what is it that I would want these people, what would I want other people to do in terms of helping me as a parent. So this is a Christian college. And so I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to them about something that's really on my heart. And that is, as, as I talked through, there was, there was something that sort of stuck out. And I said, Here, here's, what I, here's what I'd love. Here's what I'd love from you. I, I would love if you would help my daughter and other uh, 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 students like her to be able to stand up in the midst of persecution, to be able to stand up in the midst of hardship, to take a courageous stand against the winds of culture, to model that kind of courage. Chuck Colson used to say that, uh, that, that, that there is this thing he called a spiral of silence. That is that he, was, he would refer back to like 1930s Germany. And in 1930s Germany, under, before the Nazis came to power, he said the church became increasingly silent around the subjects of things that were happening in Germany, the spiral of silence. And the idea behind the spiral of silence is that the, the less people who speak up, the harder it is to speak up, right? So it just sort of spirals down. And think about how that's true for us today. Think about how we are, we are in the midst of, a, of an increasingly secularized sort of hostile culture that doesn't like some things that we talk about that we believe. We live in a pluralistic culture that says don't talk about the exclusivity of Christ. We live in a sort of post-sexual uh, 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 revolution culture that says don't talk to us about biblical sexual ethics. We live in a secular culture that wants to sort of create this utopian environment it says, we want the kingdom. We just don't want your king. Don't talk to us about those things, right? And so what happens? We're told, if you talk about him, you're a bigot. If you say anything, you're backwards. You're on the wrong side of history. Just either shut up, right? Or, you know, stay silent or change your mind. And so what do we do? Chuck Olson said the opposite is also true. There, there can be sort of a, a spiral of, of openness in people talking, he said, because the more people that speak up, the more people who will speak up. So sometimes we need people to stand up and say things like, wow, I didn't know we could say that in the midst of this culture. And, and sort of this sort of bravery begins to result from that. 
I mean, think about all around the world. There are our brothers and sisters. Katie Dobransky led us in a kind of time as a, as a staff this last week where we, we, we thought and prayed about the persecuted churches. I mean, the, the persecuted church all over the, the world. Open Doors Ministry publishes every year the top 10 places where it's hardest to be Christian. You know, North Korea, like at the top. Max Stiles says that around the world, our Christian brothers and sisters fear the raised fist in America, we fear the raised eyebrow. We're afraid. Why? Like we have a whole generation now that believes that standing up with conviction and saying, thus saith the Lord, and, and this is what the Bible says, we, we, we've, we've gotten this idea that that's intolerant, that there should be no conflict, that we shouldn't be having those kind of conversations. Travis Cunningham was telling me this past week, somebody told him actually what we need out of the pulpit is less confrontation and more conversation. Like, I get that, right? We're not, we're not out here just to make enemies. But like, if somebody's got to say something, we've got to be willing to stand up, right? So what do we do as a church? We, we soften our stance. We want to be re relevant. We want the world to like us. We want to be accepted by them. We don't want the confrontation. We want to just sort of keep our heads down, leave us alone, and please, culture, we'd like it if kind of the news feed would talk about how accepted we are as Christians. Jesus talked about this. Jesus says in Luke chapter six, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you, revile you, listen to this, and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Now, who talks like that? Who leaps for joy when people spurn your name as evil, when they persecute you, when they come against you? I'm glad you asked. Look at Acts chapter 14. In fact, skip back up two verses to Acts chapter 13 and look at verse 50. Remember last week? But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, drove them from their district. But they, that is Paul and Barnabas, shook the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for great is your reward in heaven. There they are. So, so here's what I want us to see. Luke seems to be bent on us seeing a couple of things in the book of Acts, okay? And so remember, we've done this many, many times. You don't have to do it right now, but if you go back to Acts chapter one, verse eight, you hear the outline of the book of Acts. This is what Acts is all about. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So Luke is, is dead set on you seeing that the promise of Christ is actually coming true. Every time they cross a border, they're now out in the ends of the earth, right? They're, they're going where the gospel has never been heard, never been been preached. It's going out. What Jesus promised is actually happening. But there's a second thing that I think Luke really wants you to see. And that's that when the gospel advances, there is always persecution. There is always hardship. There is always suffering. 
They go hand in hand. In fact, there's not one without the other. We could say that persecution, in fact, might be the tracks that the gospel runs on. Suffering might be the tracks that the gospel runs on. See, God, Christ never promised the apostles. In fact, the opposite, right? He never said that if you'll live as a good Christian, right, you'll just work hard at work and you'll be a good neighbor and you'll provide for people and you'll go on social justice missions and you'll do all these, then the world will love you. He never said that. In fact, he says exactly the opposite. Luke chapter six, verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. What are false prophets? False prophets are people who say what you want them to say. They don't confront you. They never talk about your sin. They tickle your ears, if I'm going to use Paul's language to Timothy, right? They rarely confront sin in your life, if ever. They caress your desires and they corrode your faith in the process. Mark Sayers, brilliant thinker, has written this. So this is, he's being tongue in cheek here. Okay, so listen to what he says. Many realize that while their hip and fantastic church may offer them opportunities to engage in justice projects, a life group that meets for community and a meal at the pub, he's Australian, and digestible life advice, they can leave the church and find similar opportunities. The kicker is that you can still enjoy all of this while ditching the biblical prohibitions on sex or having to measure up to the limitations of biblical holiness or the commitments of creedal Christian community. If you still want to keep your sneaker toe in the Christian camp, no problem. Just pick up a book or subscribe to that podcast by a progressive Christian author who will reassure you that you can still be a Christian while not getting too stressed out about sex or scripture or going to church. That's us, right? That's our culture. I can still do all of those things and be a Christian. See, why are we like this? We so desperately want to fit in. We so desperately don't want to suffer for our faith. We want people to like us. We want to be popular. But the gospel always advances in suffering. People willing to suffering. When we decide to live for Christ... When we decide to strive for holiness, when we decide that we're going to live out our faith, there will be suffering. And Acts 14 is going to help us see this. Acts 14 puts this in sort of stark contrast. This is how the gospel advances. Paul and Barnabas don't set out and go, you know what? I'm really hoping that when we go to these faraway places, people will, you know, throw rocks at us. We're going to be persecuted, we're going to suffer but they quickly discover it goes with the territory. So we're going to see three cities here today. We're going to see the city of Iconium. We're going to see the city of Lystra and the city of Derbe. Okay, they, so those two last two sort of go together. And so let's just look at the cities. Let's look what happens. Let's look at Paul's different, Barnabas's different ministry in each of these cities. So Acts chapter 14, starting in verse one, let's begin reading. Now at Iconium, they entered together into a Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks be- believed. So now let's remember the pattern that Paul uses. He goes to, mostly goes to cities where he knows there's a Jewish presence 
He finds the synagogue. He walks into the synagogue and begins preaching because they share a Bible. They share the Old Testament. So Paul goes, Paul's always looking, and Christian, this is for us, always looking for common ground, always looking for a place that we can share. So he goes, okay, the Jews and I share a Bible and that can be the launching pad for the gospel. And what were the results? It says, many believed, both Jews and Gentiles. So they're having great success. Okay, so all's looking well. Now look at verse two. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So boom, as, as soon as things are going well, they're also going bad. It's not all rosy. It's not all revival. There is persecution. There is opposition. They poison their minds. This is what Jesus said. When men spurn your name as evil. Think about this. This is people saying about you. This is people saying about Paul and Barnabas. They are dangerous people. Do not listen to what they say. They are going against what we believe. Don't trust them. They're dangerous. That's the way people talk about Christians a lot. What you believe is dangerous. What you believe is very countercultural. Okay, so let's, let's keep going. Verse three, he says, so they remained a long time. Now look, isn't this amazing? So the persecution comes, what do they do? They don't run. They turn back and says, they remain, they remain a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So there's miracles happening, they're preaching. Now, why do they go back? Probably because these new Christians are vulnerable, probably because there is incredible cultural pressure so that they would give up what Paul talked to them about and go back to their old faith. You're going to say, no, I don't want this anymore. So they needed this sort of diligent presence to teach them, to know what it's like to live in hostile territory, to know what it's like to be able to stand up against the tide of culture. See, this is one reason we need to talk about suffering and the Christian life a lot. Right? Because what happens? Suffering has a way of catching us off guard. Suffering has a way of pushing off our equilibrium. We, we can't seem to hold ourselves steady because we're not ready for it. Michelle and I, some of the staff, we, we, we go to the village, to, to uh, the village fitness and workout, and they're doing this thing right now where one of the pre-workouts to get you kind of warmed up is they, they put this big giant kind of rubber band around you and you've got to hold your body really still while somebody just yanks and yanks and yanks against this thing. Well, you know what? I'm ready for it, right? I'm ready. I'm like, okay, I'm going to lock my whole self down and I'm not going to be pulled from that. If somebody just came and I was standing here and boom, hit me, right? Knock me off my feet. Paul's going, I want them to be ready. Now, what kind of pressure are they facing? Let me, let me, um, let me suggest to you that the kind of cultural pressure they're facing is give up what you believe, sort of come back to the mainstream culture. And the mainstream culture, if we're talking about Judaism, would have been, you need to obey the law. You need to sort of earn your favor with God. Abandon that. Let me, let me say something maybe you don't know yet. Here in this region that we're in, we're in the region of Galatia. This is where we get the book Galatians. This is the people that Paul is writing to. And if you read the book of Galatians, what do you discover? 
that what they were tempted to do, and Paul even says this, how quickly they've abandoned what he taught and are going back to Judaism, going back to believing they can earn their favor with God, saying this is the way. So whatever turned them that way, somebody poisoned their mind, somebody, somebody you know, the, the cultural pressure, Paul's saying, I wanna make them stand up. So no wonder when Luke, did you notice this in verse three? When Luke summarizes the message of Paul and Barnabas, he calls it the word of his grace. That's not a coincidence. We're in Galatia. They need to understand that it's about the grace of God. It's about unmerited favor. It's about the fact that I can't earn my way into God's good graces. I can't build up my spiritual resume. Okay, so let's keep going. Now let's look at verses four through seven and look what happens here. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Okay, so let me just summarize. They, they, they leave, right? The hostility boils over to a point. They're going to be stoned. They're going to be killed. Paul understands we have a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so what does he do? He gets up and he leaves. Now, you see what's happening? You see this pattern. You're going to see it over and over again. It's if we're going to be faithful to a gospel witness, there will be suffering that comes from it. There perhaps will be intense persecution. Why? Because the gospel has edges. You understand what I mean? It's not this sort of amorphous, you know, just sort of whatever you want to make it into, right? The word of God has edges. There are things that are going to be demanded for those who believe in Jesus, that's very countercultural in a culture, especially our secular culture, that says we, you know, the greatest God of our world is just personal autonomy. There are no edges. I am supposed to be able to do everything I want. I think that's freedom. And here comes the Bible and saying that's not freedom, that's slavery. That's countercultural. And the only way to be released from that slavery is you can't do it. The gospel does it, Jesus does it for you. It has edges. Christianity has these hard truths. It breaks the foundation of autonomy. It thinks that I can just do everything that I want to do. Now, so what do they do? They go to Lystra and Derby. But Paul's going to focus mostly on Lystra here. Okay, so let's start reading in verse 8. Now, watch what happens in Lystra. Okay, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. We've seen this before in previous chapters of Acts. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So it's a miracle, right? So this is amazing. This guy has been this way for, you know, since birth. He now tells him, Stand up and walk. He gets up and walks. People are absolutely stunned. This man gets it's healed. But if we were to rewind and go back to when this happened in Jerusalem, you would see a very different reaction from the people than you do here in Lystra. Lystra is a place out in the country. Lystra is about 30 miles from Iconium. There is no Jewish presence. This is key. Paul just spoke to Jews. He comes to a place where it's all Gentile. There is no, no Jewish presence in this city. And so he comes, he begins to try and teach. He looks, God apparently prompts him, the spirit prompts him, and he heals this man. And watch what uh, people do. 
Verse 11, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voice saying in Lycaonian, okay, so they're speaking a foreign language right now. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Okay, so they're going, we attribute this to foreign gods, other gods, and the gods have come down in the likeness of men. Paul and Barnabas apparently don't understand what's going on because Luke makes a point of saying they were speaking in their own language and they're kind of like looking at this frenzy going on. Hey, well, well, I guess they're excited. This is great, right? Wonderful. Until, keep going, verse 12. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. Now, what's happening? Okay, let's get this picture in our mind. Here's some fascinating uh, history that doesn't show up in scripture of what's going on. About 50 years prior to Acts chapter 14, there was a man named Ovid, O-V-I-D, and he wrote a story. And the story takes place in the region of Lystra, what is called the Phrygian hill country. It takes right in this region. And here's the story. It's called Metamorphoses. And in the story of Metamorphoses, Hermes and Zeus come to earth disguised as ordinary people. And, and they begin to go from house to house, seeing if someone will show them hospitality. Someone will invite them in and care for them and feed them. A thousand houses say no to them. Turn them away. Get away from us. One old man, an old woman, a husband and wife, invite them in, let them spend the night, care for their needs. The next morning they wake up and Hermes and Zeus reveal themselves to be Hermes and Zeus. They take their little hut of this home and they turn it into a temple for them and they make this couple priest and priestess of the temple. And then they grant them a wish that says that on the, you both will die on the same day so that you're not lonely longing for each other. This is the legend. And the other thousand homes that turn them away are all destroyed. Now, this is in the background of Acts chapter 14. Two men have just showed up. Two men who are wearing ordinary clothes. They look like everybody else, but they perform miracles. This must be that story that we've heard. This must be Hermes and Zeus that have shown up. And so we better be really kind to them. So we're gonna offer sacrifices. We're gonna make sure that we're not destroyed. Okay, so that's what's going on in the background here. So now what happens? Verse 14, pick it up again. And it says, the, 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 but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments. They rushed out in the city crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nation to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices. It's as though the people are going, we can't hear you. We don't even know what you're saying. Like, we're just going to sort of blast right through what Paul is trying to say. But what is Paul? What happens? They're horrified. 
And so Paul stops and says, whoa, 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 let me talk to you. And he tries to find this common ground with them. Remember I said, they're not Jews. He can't start with scripture. So what does he do? Well, you don't have the scripture, but you do have eyes and you are farmers and you are aware of the natural world. So let me start there. Let me start from created order and show you how these things are coming from the one true God. Maybe he's trying to do what he says to the Romans in Romans chapter one. Do you remember this? He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has revealed it to them. For his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, his divine nature have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So what's he doing? If I can show them, right? Everybody understands there's some God who has done this. Romans 1 is basically going to say this, Christian, there is no such thing as an atheist. Every person knows more, believes more than they admit to. They suppress it. I don't want to believe this. I will not believe it. I will convince myself not to believe it. John Calvin says this, there is within the human mind and indeed by natural instinct an awareness of divinity. What is set forth in scripture concerning God's secret providence was never so extinguished from men's heart without some sparks always glowing in the darkness. People know more than they lead on. They know the truth, they just don't believe. I'm watching this documentary, on, I love documentaries, on Netflix. And uh, it's, a, it's called, if anybody's seen this, it's called One Strange Rock, hosted by Will Smith. It's fascinating. It's these astronauts that all have been spent over, to, combined a thousand days in space. These guys are brilliant. They're scientists, they're physicists. They're, they're, they're looking out at the cosmos. They're looking at our earth and they're, they're evaluating it. And to listen to them talk, they are in absolute awe and wonder over this kind of miracle of our earth. And at the same time, over and over and over, they say things like, look how lucky we are. One woman, this is a physicist. She says, I guess we should, quote, we should thank our lucky stars that all this happened. What's happening? I'll just suppress the truth. I know something, but I must not believe it. The culture is telling me I can't believe it. Whatever it is, right? So Paul and Barnabas go, okay, Paul says, I'm gonna start from creation. I'm gonna talk to him about creation. I don't want their worship. Man, there's a lesson in there, right? I don't, I'm not gonna leverage their worship of me for the gospel. I'm gonna say, no, shut this down. This is not, this is not gonna happen. And they won't believe them until some other people show up. Now, listen, let me say this. If you'll allow the, the culture to worship you or you'll worship what the culture worships, no harm will come to you. But if you insist that the culture worships Jesus Christ and him alone, you'll suffer. So, so look at verses 19 and 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Okay, apparently they speak the same language and having persuaded the crowds that were just worshiping Paul and Barnabas, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing that he was dead. Okay, so, so here's Paul 
and he gets stoned. Do you understand? Stephen gave a very graphic illustration talking about what stoning was like. And, 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 and so, I mean, this is you're buried up to essentially your, your shoulders and then they, they throw big stones at your head. Okay, this is happening to Paul because he was preaching the gospel. Because he was saying, what you believe is not true. You see how offensive this is? We stand up in the culture and say, what you believe is a lie. I'm telling you the truth. Some will believe and some will hate you for it. That's what Paul's doing. But if you keep going, it says he, he but when he, the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Like What? Paul's just stoned and he goes back to the very people that just stoned him. Like Jesus, right? He goes back to those who hated him, goes to those who reject him. This is the courage of a soldier. Like I'm just gonna keep fighting this battle. I'm gonna keep going after it. Paul is resilient. Paul is courageous. And I think Paul is probably thinking back on this when he wrote 2 Corinthians just write this in your margin or something. 2 Corinthians chapter four. Listen to Paul talk about himself. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Listen to this. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul is walking around with the death of Jesus in his body. He's been stoned. But, but now, look what he does next. Did you see that? He rose up the next day. He entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Okay, let me, let me put this in perspective. Derby is about a 60-mile hike up and down mountains. The day before, Paul has been stoned. Maybe one of his orbital bones has shattered. Maybe he's, his, his eyes are swollen shut. Maybe he has wounds that are oozing. Perhaps he's walking around with a massive concussion. And he keeps going. Now that's convicting. I don't want to go outside in Southern California. It's been too cold the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Paul's getting up and going, let's keep the mission going. This is a guy who understands this is part of what I signed up for. This is part and parcel of the Christian life. He writes to Timothy later on. Timothy's his young protege. And by the way, Timothy is from Lystra. He's from this region. And he reminds Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Listen to this. You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my love, 
my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now listen to this. Here's the lesson, Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you decide you're going to live a godly life, you'll be persecuted. See, see, suffering, these are not theoretical ideas for Paul. He goes, this happened to me. I, I was persecuted for living. I was persecuted for preaching the gospel. Now, let me just end with this. Why? Why? has God, it seems, so designed the Christian life that suffering is just part of it? Persecution. All these things that we would put under this heading of suffering. Why is it part of the Christian life? And let me just give you five things to think about here, okay? The first reason is that suffering drives our roots deeper and builds spiritual muscle, okay? I mean, think about this. It drives our roots deeper. It makes us stronger. Isn't this true? Isn't this true of anything? You don't get stronger, right, by just floating downstream. You get stronger by swimming up it. You don't get stronger by sitting on the couch and eating bonbons. You get stronger because you get up and you do something. You actually, in some ways, proactively cause your body to suffer. Why? Because you want to be stronger. The Bible says of a faithful believer, Psalm 1-3, a faithful believer is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. But How? So, so if, I'm, if the metaphor is a tree and he plants by, by this water, it allows the roots to go deeper and deeper and deeper and get stronger and stronger and stronger. But how does that happen? Well, the writers of Scripture are going to tell us all over the place. Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Right? James is going to say in James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? This is how it works. Richard Foster once said that the desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. And how you get deep, you go through suffering. You ever met somebody who's suffered a lot, who's a Christian, has kept their faith intact? They are deep people. The waters run deep in their soul. They are not easily turned over, pushed over. They've suffered and they've suffered well. The second reason suffering is because suffering is evidence, the Bible's going to say, that we belong to Christ. Do you know this? See, this is the opposite of how we think. We think suffering is evidence that God is angry with us. Right, but Paul, again, go, go back to, to, to Romans. Romans chapter 8. Let me just remind you. 
Paul says, the spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. How? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. He goes on to talk about how suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. Suffering is one of the ways we know we're children of God. Remember, let me say it again. Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven. It's not an indication God is angry with you. It's not God is coming against you. It is God saying, you're, you're going to receive a great reward. You are mine. It's evidence that we belong to Christ. Number three, suffering is part of the Christian life to remind us this world is not our home. Look at, I don't want to suffer and neither do you. I know this. In fact, Jesus even says, pray, lead us not in temptation. Deliver us from evil. But it's going to happen, right? We, we, we don't want to suffer, suffer, but so often suffering is the means God uses to sort of rattle us again, wake us up and go, remember, you're not home right yet. Right? You haven't arrived. This angst you feel is evidence that there's something else coming. God isn't trying to make you more comfortable in this world. He's trying to jog you and, and help you go, this isn't my home. Once again, listen to Mark Sayers. Again, this is, this is him being a little tongue-in-cheek here. The discomfort we feel and the lack of belonging we experience will fade. He's saying, this is how a lot of us think. You know what? This is what we want. We will be at home in the world. Disciples, however, never feel at home in the world. There ought to be a friction. There ought to be a sense that, wait, I feel like I don't belong here. You don't because you're a child of God. Fourth, Suffering is a part of the Christian life to separate real Christianity from pretend Christianity. Peter says this, you have been grieved by various trials. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is proving the genuineness of your faith. That's what this testing, that's what the suffering is doing. Peter's writing to a suffering church being persecuted. And by the way, Jesus seems to have had a real distrust of large crowds. You ever notice this? The crowds get really large. Man, Jesus is awesome. Everybody's a Facebook friend. He's got thousands and thousands of people following him. And so what is Jesus? Jesus steps in and goes, I wanna say something to all of you. Listen up. I'm going to call the herd right now. And he says things like he says in Mark chapter eight, listen to this. If anyone would come after me, it says he called the crowd to himself. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Forever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That has a tendency to thin the herd. Take up your cross. Take up a crucifixion. Walk with me on the road to suffering. That's what you're being called to do. 
over and over. Jesus said, you want to follow me? Okay, then I get preference over parents. I get preference over children. I get preference over everything. I'm demanding your total allegiance. And people go, I'm out. I don't want that. See, this is, this is him making a sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna make sure you understand the difference. There's pretend, there's real. Gordon McDonald says this, Jesus did little to encourage spectators to stick around in crowd formation. Frequently, he seems to have downsized them by enlarging what it costs to be servants of the real kingdom, the lightweights soon dispersed. There you have it. And number five, because suffering's the way into the kingdom. Okay, we ended at ver- chapter 14, verse 20. Look at verse 22. Paul goes to, says, in, uh, they return to Lystra. They're gonna go to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You see what he's doing? He's going back to these churches and saying, guys, what we experienced is normal. This is how we enter the kingdom. The kingdom comes through suffering. See, let, let me say it this way. We live, we live in an upside down world. Like Jesus, the way, Jesus says, the world has been twisted upside down. So if the world is upside down, guess which way is up? Down. What the world calls weakness is strength. What the world calls humiliation is power. What the world says you should be pursuing, right? You should be going after triumph. Jesus says, suffer. You're gonna go against the grain, right? Why should we expect? It happened to Jesus. Jesus suffered and says, come, follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. This is the way into the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you... You give us a realistic picture of life. That, Lord, we are, um, we are not uh, coddled into believing that, man, if we'll come to Jesus, all our problems will be taken care of. We'll never suffer again. In fact, in some ways, you call us onto a road of suffering. And so I pray, Lord, I pray that by your grace that we would rejoice and be glad when it happens. For great is our reward in heaven. I pray for my brothers and sisters. There are some in this room who are genuinely suffering, suffering for their faith, suffering in their lives, experiencing things they never thought they'd have to experience. God, I pray that this would test the genuineness of their faith, that that would redound in praise and glory to Jesus Christ, that they might be proven to be Christian through this. I pray that you'd use it, strengthen us, God, Seems like whenever you bring suffering, we run from it when you're trying to use it to strengthen our souls, to strengthen our hearts. So I pray, God, help us. Help us to endure. Give us grace in the midst of this, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name.